Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is David Greising. He's the president and CEO of the Better Government Association, or BGA, Illinois' premier nonpartisan civic watchdog organization. Its mission is to fight for good governance. What is good governance? The way that you're treated by your government is one of the most important factors in your quality of life. Anything from the quality of the roads that you drive on to the quality of the schools that your children or loved ones might attend to the safety of your drinking water to the safety of your streets, not to mention the taxes that people pay. We talk about the face of corruption today, how BGA exposes wrongdoing by public officials and helps citizens hold them accountable. We also talk about why it matters and how we can create a stronger society. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you. I want to go back a little bit to your history. BGA started when Chicago's reform-minded leaders fought the corrupt government of the Al Capone era, and the founders believed that public officials under close scrutiny would serve the public better, and that the best voter was an informed one and the best citizen was an involved one. What did BGA set out to do at that time, and how did it achieve it? Well, at that point, City Hall essentially was under the thumb of the mob. The mayor at the time really uh, was taking orders from the mob. Al Capone was not yet running the Chicago mob, but he was kind of a lieutenant in a very powerful organized crime syndicate. The idea was that this was not an acceptable state of affairs and that since government was not going to take control, that citizens needed to get involved to hold the government accountable. Uh, By some measures, people would say we haven't made that much progress. It's been almost 100 years, and the longest-serving alderman in the history of the city uh, has been charged with public corruption. Uh, We've had four governors go to jail. Our organization is on the watch and in the fight to prevent things from getting worse and to help things to become better. So it sounds like you said not much has changed. But what is the face of corruption today in 2019 as opposed to in 1923? Has it actually changed at least a little bit, or is it essentially the same? Well, it's a lot different than it had been. We don't have mobsters running around with Tommy guns doing things like the St. Valentine's Massacre when a number of people were lined up and shot in a near north side neighborhood of Chicago. Public corruption today has more finesse than that. It's done through insider dealings, through conflicts of interest. Some of the corruption we see actually is legal, and that's part of the scandal. What is legal as opposed to just what is illegal? Some of the conflicts of interest are just outrageous. For example, in Illinois, we have a situation in which two of the most powerful political figures in the state also run real estate assessment law firms from which they make millions of dollars in fees, often contesting decisions made by the governments that they represent. And Ed Burke is one of those, the long-serving alderman who 
currently is under indictment. The other is Mike Madigan, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, that by some measures the most powerful politician in the state. And Mike Madigan runs one of the most successful real estate law practices. And this sort of conflict of interest creates a situation in which elected officials are working contrary to the interests of the people who elect them. And, and it uh, creates the sort of temptations that uh, Ed Burke allegedly has fallen prey to. So it is not illegal then for them to be doing both of the things at the same time, being an alderman, also running a real estate assessment company. It is not illegal, but the law is clear that it is illegal for them to offer public acts in return for private benefit. Uh, there, there are many charges against Ed Burke, but they have to do with the ways in which he allegedly would hold up public acts until various private parties agreed to hire his law firm. If one reads the charges against him and the federal government is alleging that he traded public acts in return for his private benefit. So you uncovered this through investigative journalism? The BGA last Labor Day, uh, Labor Day of 2018, launched an investigation into Ed Burke's conflicts of interest. We were nearly done with our investigation at the time that the feds raided his offices in pursuit of what ultimately became these federal charges against him. This is not the typical way things happen. We didn't know the feds were conducting their investigation. I don't know if they were aware of the work that we were doing. After the raid on on Burke's offices, we scrambled to publish whatever we could. We wanted to get our story out before a federal charge came. And also there was an election coming and we felt that the public had a right to know, given that his offices had been raided, the public had a right to know what the true story was about the way Burke conducted himself. And so we were able to publish our story December 26th of last year. And the first charge against Ed Burke came in January. Despite our story and despite the federal charge against him, Burke was resoundingly reelected in the February primary election. He didn't even need to go for a runoff. He's very popular in the ward he represents and remains popular today. He still attends council meetings. He still acts as if nothing has happened, although his, his role and his clout in the city of Chicago are very much diminished. I find that very baffling. Do you have an opinion as to how politicians like him continue to be popular despite obvious wrongdoing? Well, the, the legendary Chicago columnist Mike Royko used to jokingly say that the city motto of Chicago is, where's mine? In other words, when a deal was being cut, mainly what people wanted to know is, how do I benefit from this? There seems to be a trade-off in places like Ed Burke's 14th Ward that whatever he may be doing wrong or illegally, the people who sent him to city council nevertheless have benefited from his power and the goodies that he brings back to his ward, and therefore he remains popular there. And to this day, if you talk to people in that ward, they'll make all kinds of excuses about what Ed Burke has done, and they will tell stories about the largesse that he has brought to his ward. 
that brings me to my next question, because one of the things that your investigative journalism has done at BGA is expose corruption, voter fraud. People have had to resign or have been fired. And in this case, that hasn't really quite happened. And the person is still popular. So what is the power of investigative reporting as a service to the public? I can answer your question, but before I go on, he is popular in one ward out of 50 in the city. In the rest of the city, he is disgraced. He has lost all the power that he had in the city council. The new mayor, who was elected in part in public revulsion at the kind of corruption that Burke symbolized, in her first city council meeting, she very directly told him to sit down and shut up, basically. Those weren't her exact words, but it was something close to that. He is a very diminished figure who has no real power outside of his ward anymore. And so I don't want to leave an impression that the rest of the city is okay with what Ed Burke has done. In terms of our ability to have impact, it relies on changing public perception on holding individual people accountable for their failings, and ultimately to identify structural failings in government that need to be addressed. And our most impactful stories are those that lead to reform measures, lead to legislation, lead to changes in voter behavior, ultimately. We also have a policy team that advocates for reform, and that group has a growing amount of influence over affairs in the city and state right now. Can you give me an example of one of your most effective exposés that has led to the changes that you talked about in terms of changing voter behavior and policies? Just in the last year or so, we did an investigation into police shootings in the suburbs. After the notorious case of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald being gunned down by a police officer, Jason Van Dyke, who ultimately was charged with manslaughter and has been found guilty, we did an investigation into shootings in the suburbs of Cook County, which are predominantly African-American communities. And we found that of 113 shootings over seven years, none of those led to any disciplinary action. And As a result of that investigation, a law was passed in the state of Illinois to require at least an investigation whenever a cop discharges his or her sidearm while on duty. We did an investigation into the city's Department of the Environment. Former mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, when he took office, had disbanded that department and claimed that the job of environmental oversight would be spread to other departments of the city and could be done just as effectively that way. Our investigation found that basically there was no environmental oversight being done. The new mayor of the city of Chicago has committed to reestablishing the Department of Environment. And just yesterday, the inspector general of the city of Chicago came out with a report that basically verifies the findings that we made. Uh, We published our story nearly a year ago. So we were well ahead of the city on that. We try to target what we believe are government shortcomings that affect the health, safety, and welfare of people in the community. And our more impactful investigations do lead to government responses. How do you come up with the most pressing issues of today? How do you determine what you want to either investigate or advocate for a policy? Well, those are two separate 
activities and the two do not coordinate. In order to maintain our journalistic objectivity, the investigators need to operate independently from our policy team. So I'll start with the investigative team. They have individual areas of expertise that we focus on. For example, a reporter focused on the environment, somebody focused on education, others focused on criminal justice, etc. And so their day-to-day job is to be identifying investigative subjects of interest. On top of that, we get together every once in a while and talk about what is the biggest and most impactful investigation we can do right now. We just recently published a story about contracting at O'Hare Airport. The city is just about to invest $8.5 billion into an O'Hare modernization program, and we decided to look into the history of contracting and found a history of contract fraud, of contractors misrepresenting their minority contracting credentials of lobbyists who make millions of dollars from contracting, from steering contracts to their clients, that sort of thing. We do both kind of what would be typical in sort of expertise beat type coverage and also some just big thinking about what are the biggest stories we could be covering right now. On the policy side, we look for opportunities to really have impact on issues that are kind of in the public square. For example, our policy director participated in the mayoral transition to help the mayor and her staff develop an ethics agenda. And after that work, Marie Dillon, our policy chief, published the BGA's top 10 ethical reforms that the mayor ought to undertake. Some of those were covered in the mayor's proclaimed intents and others were not. We've continued to score the mayor on her progress toward those 10 reform measures. And so those two groups work independently of each other, but both of them are very focused on bringing better government to the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. How do you get this information out to the public? How can I get your scoring of the mayor's agenda? How can I know that you're doing this? Well, with many of our investigations, we co-publish with Legacy Media Partner. We frequently publish with uh, WBEZ, the National Public Radio affiliate here in Chicago, with the Chicago Sun-Times, with Crane's Chicago Business, other established media organizations. But we also have our own website, bettergov.org, where we publish stories, and we occasionally publish stories completely on our own. Our stories sometimes are covered as news in their own right. Your ability to track down our investigations varies depending on the individual investigation and what our publishing strategy might be for each one. Your organization also engages in advocacy and civic engagement campaigns to effectively educate and mobilize citizens in the state of Illinois. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, one of the more interesting things we've done in the last six months or so was the publication of um, a citywide voter's guide. This mayoral election was one of the most hotly contested mayoral elections in the history of the city, ultimately resulting in the election of a woman, Lori Lightfoot, who is our first African-American woman mayor who also happens to be openly gay. People had a, a deep interest in this election both at the mayoral level and also at the individual levels of the council members, the city wards. We got together with a number of other nonprofit news organizations in the city and 
produced a website that covered all 50 ward races as well as the the citywide races and published stories as well as candidate profiles and also information about how to vote, where to vote, which races you would vote for depending on what your street address was. Getting involved in, in empowering people to participate in their democracy is a big part of our civic engagement effort. Tell me a little bit about how this dovetails your other work, the investigative journalism, as well as the policy. How does it all fit together under one umbrella? Well, after we publish an investigation, we go out in the community oftentimes where we meet with people who are affected by our stories. These are tend to be very informal. I held an event at a Starbucks and we had about 30 people show up, some of them bringing documents that they wanted to hand off to our reporter to say, hey, the city is messing with me in this way or that way. And on the policy side, once we've published an investigation, our policy team is free to look at structural reforms that perhaps need to happen and to advocate for those. And so from time to time, our policy team will follow up with policy recommendations. Why should citizens care about good governance? The way that you're treated by your government is one of the most important factors in your quality of life, whether you focus on that or not is a different question, but anything from the quality of the roads that you drive on to the quality of the schools that your children or loved ones might attend to the safety of your drinking water to the safety of your streets, not to mention the taxes that people pay. Those are all very relevant to the daily lives of people, and we try to highlight the ways in which people are affected by their government. What would you say is the benefit of good governance when it comes to supporting democracy? When you have good governance, people feel that their investment in their time voting, their investment that they make in paying their taxes, in participating in civic life in other ways, is rewarded. That the social contract that we have between ourselves as individuals and the governments that we elect to serve us is being upheld. When you have corruption, when you have waste, when you have fraud, when you have inequitable distribution of the resources of government, that's when the social contract breaks down. People become cynical, they become disengaged, they even get up and leave sometimes. Having a good government, a responsive government, is a big factor in people feeling that it's worth spending their time investing in their community. So uh, if I want to get more involved around government accountability, good governance, making sure that my voice is heard and my government is responsive to me. What are two things I could be doing? Well, voting for starters, because voting is the ultimate accountability measure. Choose something you care about and get involved in it. Every time I engage with somebody who is involved either in our work or any other civic work, they always talk about getting more than they put in, and that tends to be the experience of people. And so you can't just do that kind of as a token gesture. You have to really care passionately about the mission of the organization you're involved in. But if you do find that organization, and if we all find one such organization, the civic life of all of our communities would be a lot stronger. That's good advice. What has been the most rewarding 
for you in doing this work with BGA? I think um, we're unique in the fact that we have kind of this three-legged stool of investigations, advocacy, and civic engagement. And the ability to attack issues at all three levels is a privilege uh, for me and for the people here at the BGA. And to see the effect that we can have to be invited by the city, for example, to participate in their effort to reform the government, to see investigations just in their own right lead to government reform. Those are very rewarding moments and uh, make us all feel like we're contributing to the good of society. That's truly inspirational. What inspires you to do the work that you do? You know, I've spent uh, almost my entire career in journalism. In journalism and in many other professions, the search for truth is its own reward. The great thing about when we find truth, we're able to share it with thousands to millions of people and affect their worldviews, affect their life experiences, and in some cases help to make their lives somewhat better. And that's a very rewarding work. Do you think that there will be a future without corruption? I don't expect, given human nature, that there will ever be a future without corruption. But what I look forward to is a day in which corruption is considered completely unacceptable in public life. I look for a time when we no longer, as citizens, think it's entertaining or just part of the civic fabric here, that we think it is revolting and an embarrassment and we won't put up with it anymore. And I'm hoping that that's something that we can help to build toward over time. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I think that to see a mayor elected in the city of Chicago in response to alleged criminal conduct by a very prominent political figure indicates to me that voters possibly have had enough of the old way of doing business. And to put our hopes that the person who is now on the fifth floor of City Hall, in fact, is a reformer and can get things done, um, is at least a moment of optimism. Yet at the same time, the, the real world pressures that Lori Lightfoot is facing, a, a deficit in the budget of about a billion dollars, cleaning up the corruption that's systemic here, um, bringing equity to the way the city distributes its largesse. Those are huge, huge challenges. And I'm hopeful in that I believe she does have good intentions and my colleagues with me will be on the watch to see how well she executes against those good intentions. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for being on Future Hindsight. Glad to do it and uh, good luck with your podcast. We live and have lived in an age of corruption. Across the board, our elected representatives, whether in a local or state office, all the way to the president, appear to have no qualms in abusing public office for private gain. As David reminds us, when you have corruption, fraud, and inequitable distribution of government resources, that is when the social contract breaks down. That's when we become cynical and disengaged. Demanding accountability falls on all of us. And who knows, 
if corruption will ever end. Are humans just too easily tempted? I challenge all of us to demand accountability, to end this odious practice once and for all. Although voting is still the ultimate tool of accountability, we cannot stop there. Civic engagement builds a virtuous cycle for our society and our democracy. Good governance instills faith and creates even more cause for civic engagement. Find an organization whose mission you care about deeply and get involved. You'll get more out of it than what you put in and on the way you'll be strengthening our civic life. Next week, our guest is Stephen Wertheim. He's a co-founder and the research director of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. It's officially launching on December 4th. We'll be talking about why we need to reinvigorate diplomacy as a tool for world peace and the consequences of our foreign policy for our own democracy here at home. The place we start is that responsible statecraft serves the public interest and is democratic. One of the problems with our foreign policy has been that a narrow elite has defined America's place in the world and forgot about the needs and aspirations of their own society. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. Mm-hmm.